Welcome to the Champions Interview Series. My name is Chris O'Grady and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm from the class of 2012 and I'll be your host today. I'm a member of the Monacan Indian Nation and I'm so excited to introduce our guest this afternoon. Joining us today is Adam Badwound. His pronouns are he, him, his and has his master's degrees from Stanford in educational policy from 2005 and Sociology 26. Adam is a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe and today's Champions interview is co-sponsored by the Stanford Indigenous Alumni Association. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be here. The Champions is an interview series led by Stanford Pride featuring Stanford alumni who are championing diversity and inclusion as members of the LGBTQ community. We'll have time for audience questions uh, and answers at the end. And during the chat, you can post your questions in the Zoom chat throughout the interview. We have so much to talk about today, Adam, but before we dive in, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Happy to, thank you, Chris. Just briefly about me, uh, I've been involved at Stanford since I was a Stanford student uh, in the past as a board member of Stanford Pride, so glad to have a homecoming here, and as a member of the board of directors of the Stanford Indigenous Alumni Association. I've also been a part of the Stanford Alumni Association, SAA, and uh, previously served also a little bit on uh, the board of the Stanford Club of San Francisco. So I've been quite involved with Stanford alumni communities since my time as a student. Uh, professionally, I'm currently Chief Development Officer at Grid Alternatives. That's an international organization that builds community-powered solutions to advance economic and environmental justice through renewable energy. You definitely have quite the involvement with the Stanford community. And in addition to that, you're also the founder of the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund, a philanthropic initiative that supports a vision for Indian country that's educational, entrepreneurial, and completely renewable. What was the motivation to found the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund, and what's the impact you hope to have in Indian country? Yeah, well, I'm really happy to speak about this work in part because of the personal connection I have to it. As you mentioned, I'm a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, uh, Lakota, and my reservation is Pine Ridge based in southwestern South Dakota. And me and my family are from the Black Hills and the Badlands, an area that we consider sacred. I've been fortunate to work as a nonprofit development professional in fundraising and financing uh, since my time as a Stanford student, where I also worked at the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and the Haas Center for Public Service, where I now serve on the National Advisory Board. For my entire career, I've worked as a land and water protector, and this work is resonant to me and my personal mission to strengthen people and planet through philanthropy. The genesis of the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund was really around the activism that was happening around Standing Rock back in 2016, towards the end of the Obama administration and the early Trump years. The organization I work with now, Grid Alternatives, is based in Oakland, and we're a leading renewable energy nonprofit organization in the United States with a mission to make renewable energy technology and job training accessible to frontline communities fighting for economic and climate justice. To date, GRID has installed more than 18,500 clean energy projects, totaling more than 80 megawatts of clean energy that will generate an estimated $621 million in cost savings for low-income households, while also preventing 1.7 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Additionally, 2,280 people have reported finding employment after our job training programs. 
If you're interested in learning more, you can check us out online at www.gridalternatives.org. So anyways, at GRID, we've been partnering with Native American tribes since around 2010. Our model is a little bit like Habitat for Humanity uh, for solar, where we work to advance energy sovereignty and energy plans within the local community. So we bring the technology and we also bring programming around workforce development and job training opportunities. So while we do the work, we're trying to do training and advance energy sovereignty through the projects and the programs. Yeah, the Steaming Rock Tribe and surrounding communities were the ones to organize a campaign to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016. And the protest grew to thousands of people and generated a lot of attention. Yeah, Chris, uh, that's right. And really, a lot of the work that I'm doing today, I have uh, to really thank to the activism that happened around at Standing Rock. Uh, we've been working with the Standing Rock Indian Reservation and other tribes throughout the country, as I've mentioned. And when this activism took fire, we really saw that a lot of tribes uh, were really looking for clean energy solutions in the ways that they were confronting pipelines and extractive fossil fuels. And so there was really a growing of interest in uh, renewable energy technologies and our work really seemed to be needed at the time. So back then, one of our corporate funding partners reached out to us with a desire to help support renewable energy projects with US, American Indian, Alaska Native tribes. The corporate partner made a big commitment to doing uh, as much as they could to help improve Indian country, um, and they came to us and they asked for advice and insights on how we could partner with tribes to help leverage different types of funding sources so that way we could make this, these types of projects possible to advance renewable energy projects in the face of pipelines. So long and short of it is that we decided to develop a standalone fund specifically to, uh, to support the development of tribal renewable energy projects. This fund would then help leverage public, private, and philanthropic resources while also confronting some of the primary barriers that we've identified to uh, helping tribes obtain and uh, understand renewable energy technologies. We took this as an opportunity to be more thoughtful about the ways that we engage with tribes, and in particular, how we could confront barriers to renewable energy access that we thought we could actually do something about. So this one was created to provide flexible capital to help address those barriers. Yeah, and tribes may have some unique barriers that they are addressing. Can you tell us about those barriers and what you're doing to address them in your work? Absolutely. So according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which has done some research on this topic, the first barrier that we come to understand was a very significant one. And that's the barrier to access to funding and financing. So of course, this fund came to be in part to help meet, meet that uh, barrier that tribes were facing. So this is where the corporate dollars have also been able to help us, where we can leverage dollars from donors, from companies, from public agencies, and from, from philanthropy uh, to leverage these dollars to help make those projects happen. So for as an example, a number of the, the tribes that we partner with, uh, they submit applications to the United States Department of Energy's Office of Indian Energy uh, to help support their projects. Uh, now, I think it's kind of interesting that there is such a thing as an office of Indian energy. And when you start to think about it, um, that is sort of telling about the relationship that the U.S. government has had with tribes, and they still do call us Indians, in part because that is what we were referred to in the treaties that we agreed to enter into. And so that is still a nature of uh, the ways that the government intersects with tribes. But the U.S. Office of Indian Energy uh, is there to help support uh, renewable energy and other energy projects in Indian country. So the tribes that we've partnered with have often been uh, working with the Department of Indian Office of Indian Energy for funding, but all of those projects have had 50% uh, or somewhat of a match requirement. Sometimes the match has been lower, but often these tribes have 
had these projects proposed where they're able to get part of the funding there through the Department of Energy, but they have a significant amount of funding that they're uh, on the hook for to fund as part of their cost share. So that's where we thought we could step in is to help provide some flexible project funding that could then be leveraged with the Department of Energy's resources. Um, and they're really significant resources that the Department of Energy has. So they're vetting the projects to make sure that they're technically sound, uh, but they're also providing technical advice and assistance throughout the project development cycle. So that was the initial start to the Solar Accelerator Fund model. And, and as we've gotten more funding, we they've we've been able to build uh, other programmatic areas to help confront some other barriers to renewable energy access that we find. In addition to funding, the second barrier, which is significant, is a lack of technical capacity. Um, technical knowledge and solutions have been really challenging for tribes to bring back to their local communities. That's from project design to ongoing operations and maintenance. By building a stronger tribal workforce, uh, we're hoping that we can be able to bring greater technical knowledge to the local context. And then the third barrier that we saw was actually in leadership. And we've seen throughout the project's development cycle that often turnover is a problem. The pandemic brought a lot of challenges around that as well. Um, but there were really just a lot of labor shortages and a lack of uh, leadership development within the tribal communities we were partnering with. So there's a lot of issues that we've been trying to face uh, to uh, increase technical and uh, leadership expertise. So we developed a fellowship and a scholarship program to help meet those opportunities and to help really in, uh, enhance the individual tribal capacity as well as the capacity of tribal entities. So tribal individuals is part of our change, our theory of change model. Uh, and uh, in addition to project funding, that was uh, what we were kind of initially starting to focus on. So that's that's financing, that's technical knowledge, and that's leadership development. And so through all of those key elements, we've tried to draw that in together through the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund. We've been actually really tremendously successful in doing this work, and I'm really grateful for our tribal partners and our funding partners that have come together uh, to really make this work happen. Uh, last year, we caught the attention of Jeff Bezos, which was very exciting, and we received a $12 million gift from the Bezos Earth Fund to dramatically help us scale our projects and programs. Uh, for a frame of reference, uh, 12, for a $12 million grant, uh, the average cost of like a single family home, kind of depending on where it's located and other factors, but the average cost of a solar install on a single family home can be anywhere from twenty dollars to $25,000, give or take. And so if you can imagine what we can do with $12 million and how we can really scale that far and wide, uh, it's very exciting. And I think it's uh, just a tremendous amount of success that we have to look forward to seeing. Uh, so for anyone that's listening or who would be interested in applying for a grant, a fellowship or a scholarship, I'd encourage you to check us out online at www. This is so amazing to hear about. I think it's so helpful to have resources for tribes that are working on their tribal governance structures in terms of strengthening their tribal sovereignty in this area. Um, many tribes are building up their own enterprises around renewable energy that centers their cultural connection to the land as well, and really having that within the framework and how they're approaching this work. Does your cultural connection to the land guide how you approach the renewable energy sphere? And if so, how? Absolutely. Uh, the cultural connection to the land and to the sky is really what motivates me as a tribal member doing in this work. And these are culturally based and uh, really components of my family and my tribe and my people. In the simplest ways, what we're really trying to do is to protect Mother Earth, and we're doing so with the wisdom and solutions of 
grandfather sky. And so for me to be able to work in both the land and sky space is really culturally resonant. And these symbols are references for me about how important this work is in helping people and helping the planet together. Um, but also in the wisdom and the benefit from solar solutions that come from the sky and come from the sun, this tremendous source of energy that gives all life and gives us all a sense of connection under the same star. So the cultural connection that I've worked with in this work is one where there's really a lot of interesting intersectionality about myself, my culture, and the land and the people, and I'm really honored to be a part of that. Yes, and many tribal communities I work with, and in my tribe, we talk about the seven generations that we're cultivating land for and we're cultivating the future for, and how our ancestors cultivated the earth with us in mind as the seventh generation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and with an indigenous worldview that also frames my understanding about how we exist uh, within people, as a people within creation. It's also a reflection to some degree of the cultural pieces of working in community and with one another. That's some, something that I've personally experienced through my family's stories of honoring Mother Earth, but not just for the benefit of Mother Earth, but which is totally compelling, but for the prosperity and the benefit of seven generations. And when I think about energy solutions and the projects we're developing, it's not like let's just slap solar on for the sake of solar and being green. It's really a bigger narrative about generational change. And that's how I've understood the work is within a historical community context. And sometimes that can be quite complicated. Uh, there's also a lot of things that are related to bringing values and ways of knowing and ways of understanding. But ultimately, the way that I put it together is to think about how generations are a part of our people and a part of our story and more than just our individual lives. So that's why I feel that there's a really strong commitment for myself to protect the Mother Earth. It's the understanding that we're doing this for the prosperity of seven generations that are going to come after us, but also that we're inheriting the world today from the ancestors that came before us. This is an understanding of multi-generational cultural connections to the community and to the work. And it's really one of the ways that I, as an indigenous person, uh, really bring my worldview and my understanding of the world into the concepts that I find are related and intersectional. This is how I think about the work. And this is how I think about the generations that motivate us for the reasons why we're doing this work today. Yeah, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing, Adam. You also mentioned a few times energy sovereignty. And a lot of people who haven't worked with tribes before don't understand what the term sovereignty means in relationships to tribes. So what does sovereignty mean to you and what does it mean for a tribe to exercise their energy sovereignty? Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you asked. And it is a somewhat of a complicated concept, um, but it is one that I guess is really rooted on a very basic premise that these nations and that these uh, tribal people are sovereign in their nation-to-nation uh, -nation status or relationship with the United States, States federal government. So this is something that has been affirmed for hundreds of years now through the executive branch, through the ju judicial branch, and through Congress, they've all affirmed that tribes are inherently sovereign nations. And that means that they're able to govern themselves and have the ability to make resource decisions that reflect their own interests and not necessarily the interests of the United States federal government. So as I understand it, most tribal entities manage resources that do come from federal sources, but they are administered in a manner that reflects this cultural concept of self-determination. So basically, tribes have the ability to determine our own future and the ways that we want to spend our resources for things like healthcare, infrastructure, education, and other things like energy. 
When we work for this concept towards energy sovereignty, what we're really trying to do is allow the tribe the ability to lean on their own solutions uh, without regard to whatever we think would be a solution as outsiders. So even though I'm a native person and I come from a tribal community, when we work with other tribes or other communities, I am an outsider. So my goals and my understanding may or may not align with their vision for the work. And that's where we really want to understand what the local uh, uh, goals are for their own self-determination. And then that can mean very different things, one community to the next. So one example of energy sovereignty that I like to lift up is our partnership with the Spokane Tribe of Indians in Eastern Washington. Uh, with them, we supported a project called the Children of the Sun Solar Initiative. Uh, and we've been able to develop a lot of meaningful energy projects with them that allowed to develop their own renewable energy solutions based on the local need. So our partnership with them began in 2016, and our partnership was born of fire, the Cayuse Mountain Fire of 2016, which threatened to destroy all of the tribal buildings, many of the tribal homes and properties, and a lot of their tribal community facilities. The fire ended up in the end destroying their transmission lines, making it impossible for them to fight the fires and protect their lives and livelihoods. During this fire, 14 homes were destroyed and 50 tribal members were displaced. After this fire, the tribe made a significant commitment to finding local energy solutions that would prepare them for the next disaster. The tribe partnered with us to install solar on their tribal buildings, on elder homes, and on some of their community facilities. One of the highlights of this project was that we were able to partner with the tribe to install a solar on the tribe's fish hatchery, which is very compelling because they are a tribal, they are fish-eating tribal nation. So the fish provide the sustenance for them to survive. So protecting their primary source of food was also inherently connected to their sense of energy sovereignty. When the power goes out, a fish hatchery has somewhere between four to six minutes to find other sources of energy for the operations. Otherwise, the fish will die. So there's lots of benefits to renewable energy that are connect, interconnected with other areas that affirm tribal sovereignty and leadership, such as food security and food sovereignty. As we develop these projects, they can be also taken and understood as a reflection of what the tribe's self-development goals are. So that's what we're here to support. It means something very different, one tribe to the next, but that's part of what's so fun and exciting about the work is getting to know the people and getting to understand the way that they see opportunities for their future and how we can support those. Well, I have one last question for you before we turn it over to Q&A from the audience. So I want to talk more about you and your personal identity in the work. For some tribes, communities are still doing the work to decolonize how indigenous LGBTQI2S people are embraced. Can you tell us about your journey of identity and how it intersects with the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And, you know, being an indigenous person is probably the identity that I carry first and foremost. Um, but I really appreciate what you said about the seventh generations and sort of that model and like really how indigenous wisdom and indigenous worldview is fundamentally how I see myself. So as an indigenous person, I, I look around and I embrace a concept that in my tribal language we call matakie oyasin, which is that everything and everyone is related. Everything in creation and everything else has one relationship to each other and all living things under the sun are family members and as people, we are living with our relatives and other living things, even things that are outside of our species. So like our winged friends, our two-legged friends, our four-legged friends, our relatives with fins and with feathers. This is a concept that I see in a lot of indigenous communities, but it's really an understanding that we're all fundamentally related. 
And when you kind of un understand what that means from a worldview, concepts like colonial and, and capitalism and certain types of religion are really fundamentally kind of at conflict with understanding what that really means. For me and for my community, I feel like it sort of is an understanding that whatever the labels that you are that you would use to describe me, so maybe cis, male, gay, <laughs> uh, whatever those labels would be, uh, that you could use to describe me, well, they might all be true, and I guess I would embrace most of those labels or be comfortable with them. The truth is, is that I feel that I'm an independent creature, regardless of the labels that exist within creation. And so those are sort of the fundamental ways that I see that who I am is I'm a bird of a certain feather or a different kind of a stripe. And that's really how I kind of understand my role as a gay person or a two-spirit person or whatever the label might be. I think that we live in a world where everybody brings their own unique gifts and talents. And whatever you call our orientations and the ways that we do that work, so long as you're walking in a good way and you're on a good journey, that's your journey and that's who you are. And so I come from a culture that I think really uplifts us to be whoever we want to be as the creature that you were created and your role in your journey and through creation. Thank you so much for answering those questions, Adam. We're going to take a few questions from the audience now. So for a live audience, please use the chat feature to send your questions. The first question that I can see in the chat is from Pat. Is there a tribal economic development aspect to this beyond just providing energy to tribal populations? Great question, because as I mentioned with sort of food security and other forms of sovereignty, there's a lot of economic development potential that does come from renewable energy that is created and sometimes it, it supports whatever the enterprises are that the tribe would like to sustain. So we have had conversations with tribes about uh, renewable energy on their casinos or their other business interests, but we've also seen contexts in which where we can provide like a source of clean electricity that allows an artist to make art in the, in the night when they might not otherwise have a source of power to provide that light bulb. And so there's a lot of creative aspects that come from renewable energy just in general, but certainly a lot of it enterprise and the other uh, economic benefits are something that we like to see. So there's certainly the cost savings that the, 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 the technology provides, but in addition to the savings, uh, we also like to understand that that dollar is now no longer going to an investor-owned utility outside of the tribe. That dollar is staying within the tribal community, and when it's there, it can circulate. It can go to the tribal store, the tribal gas station, the tribal market. But when those dollars are, are, are extracted outside of the, uh, of the reservation or the tribal lands, uh, someone else gets that benefit. And so part of our work is really capturing the local economic opportunities to keep those dollars there within the tribe where they belong. We have one other question in the chat from Gus. What's your advice for the next generation? Oh my. That is a, that's a really wonderful question, and it's one that really humbles me, because uh, normally I would look to my elders for advice and for leadership, and so um, I guess I try and embrace this as I've asked this kind of a question, but, you know, honestly, the advice that I would give to Indigenous people in the next generation is to really step up for one another and to really be there for one another. Uh, despite a lot, a lot of the opportunities that I get very excited about around renewable energy that are really, I think, bringing positive solutions to Indian country, we have to understand that this is within a context that is incredibly, incredibly difficult and traumatic. And that includes things like genocide, extinction, and uh, loss of culture and loss of language. And I just wanna make sure that I like honor and uplift that challenge and those struggles and the horrific sort of uh, path that we've been on because it's really been hard. And I just really understand that there's a lot of trauma that comes from that. And so working through that trauma and working through that together is where I am really motivated and really excited. And it is 
is for the seven generations. But I just want to make no mistake, the climate crisis we're in is one that is incredibly horrific and incredibly difficult. And so my my advice and my, my, my request to all of us is that we really show up for one another and live in community, that we follow the ways of our ancestors and that we really speak to one another uh, for a stronger, um, more resilient future uh, together than we would otherwise have alone in this fight. And so I, I ask my, my Indian country and my friends and colleagues to join us in this work. And uh, I look forward to the future that we're building together. I agree. And I just want to uplift a comment that Pat put in the chat in response. Thank you, Adam and Chris. This is an important topic. And it's great to hear that there is native leadership and vision here and organizing. I'm honored. Thank you so much, Chris. It was a pleasure to be a part of the champion series here today. And thank you so much for facilitating us. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm Chris O'Grady. Our guest is Adam Badmund. This has been The Champions, an interview series of Stanford Pride. And today's interview is co-sponsored by the Stanford Indigenous Alumni Association.